Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. We are launching a whole study into this book, Matthew. We are not going to hurry through the book of Matthew. We are going to let each text speak to us. We're going to respond to it because this is great. Now, all the Bible is great, but we just want to make sure that we don't try to just rush through this. The book of Matthew is significant, as other texts are, but it's significant because of its place in the canon in that it it serves to bridge the covenants, the Old and New Testament, it brings these covenants together, Jesus being the one, the bringer together, but Matthew's text intentionally, he writes in such a way as to bring them together. Matthew wrote, arguably, Matthew wrote early in the 50s or the 60s. Now, I need to just go back over this again. If you are a Bible student or you are a, you're a person who likes to have your your study Bible, or maybe you like Wikipedia and you Google, you know, you Wikipedia up the book of Matthew, you're going to read some things that I just need to tell you right away are wrong. Okay? And here's the thing. There, are, there is a school of thought that occurred somewhere in the, in the 1700s and 1800s called higher criticism. Some of higher criticism is pretty good. It's fine because it, it takes a literary analysis of the text, and the Bible is literature and can be examined as such. But the bulk or the, the strongest voices in higher criticism approach the, the Scriptures not as Scripture at all but only as ancient literature. So they took away any theistic worldview and just read them. Not only did they take away a theistic worldview, they rejected a theistic worldview. So what we're saying is the, the, the loudest voices of higher criticism are evaluating the Bible like they're atheists. That makes it difficult to read the Bible. Because it's not that that they 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 are they, the original authors and the original audiences claimed it was divine scripture, embraced it as such. They all agreed it as such. But then, in in unparalleled human arrogance, seventeen eighteen hundred years later, they said, "Nah, we think all of them are wrong." One of the things that they point out with the book of Matthew and saying that the book of Matthew clearly, clearly has to be written later than the, than the 50s or the 60s is that, there's a, is that in the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I had to give that to you, but it made it look like you were serving me, and I didn't want to send that message to everybody. <laughs> I saw you reaching for it, but I thought, no, I don't want them to think, oh, here, you take this. You know, uh, uh, we didn't want them to know the truth. Yeah. <laughs> She's very confused. Wait, what? That's, why are you pretending? Uh, <laughs> thanks, babe. <laughs> uh, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is with his disciples, and they're walking out of the temple in Jerusalem, and the disciples are saying, Master, isn't this place cool? Look at all this stuff. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, You think this is great? And he says, not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. And, and, what, and, and then that happened. He, this, is, this is 30-ish A.D. that Jesus says that, allegedly. And then in 70 A.D. it happened. The Romans came in and they dismantled the temple brick by brick. 
not just because they were mad at the temple, but because they wanted the gold that was inside all and, and interwoven in the whole thing. They wanted to extract any wealth that was there. It was, rise, it was theirs by right of plunder, so they plundered. And literally, every stone was removed. The higher criticism people say, well, clearly, because it's impossible to know the future, therefore, Matthew had to have been written after the temple was destroyed. So now, now, so now there, there's the rub. Now, you just have to acknowledge that the, people, that the, the, rejection, the, the rejection of God, the atheistic mindset says that Matthew has to be written later, probably not even written by Matthew, etc. et al. They say all kinds of things. But remember, these are the same voices that brought us Freud. In the 1700s and 1800s, the German thought, here you have, I'm thinking it's German, but this is in that season, these are the same voices that brought us Freud and Darwin. So, if you like Freud and Darwin, you'll love higher criticism. Okay? So what we need to do is trust the voices of the early church. Trust the voices of those in who in the first and second and third centuries, what we know is that they, they unanimously ascribed Matthew as the author of this book. And not only that, but Matthew was their favorite of the Gospels to quote. They, they said that his, they, many of them said his was the earliest, and it was their, their favorite quotable. So what we have in Matthew is a very ancient, very trustworthy, very close to the source story of Jesus, the connection between the, the Old and the New Testament, and, the, and then we have what, what appears to be, and we'll unpack this more, is we have this, uh, this didactic, this catechismic document that the early church used to bring, that, that new believers came into the kingdom and the book of Matthew was used like a textbook on this is Christianity and this is how you live like it. Are you excited to go through this book together? Now, the major theme or a singular, if there's a singular sound or song that comes through the book of Matthew, it has a regal t tone to it. There are, you can hear royal horns blowing as you read through the text because this is the regal gospel. And then the message of Matthew is Jesus is king and his kingdom has come. So our title for this series is Kingdom Come. So today, as we open up the scriptures, here's what we'll see today. We're going to read the first 17 verses of Matthew. Here's what we'll see, just straight up. This is, these are the three points that we're going to emphasize. Number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Secondly, we will see Jesus is the evidence of providence. And thirdly, because of Jesus, we can trust God to keep his word. Matthew begins, as we all know, Matthew is one of the two gospel writers that begins his text with a birth narrative. There's good reasons for that. We'll cover that next week. It's not just so that we'll have cute Christmas stories. It's really, really important. But even, be, even before the birth narrative, Matthew starts before the birth of Jesus, and he gives us the story of Jesus' lineage through the nation, through the generations. In other words, Matthew starts off with the first 17 verses. Don't get upset with me, but I'm just going to tell you what you know is true. He gives us, he starts off with 17 verses that all of you skip. 
Don't get out. Don't start sassing and writing me letters. Here's the deal. You can brag, but you know you start at verse 18. All right, just razzing, simmer down. Here we go. Let's read the first 17 verses and see what these 17 verses say to us. By the way, I've already told you, there are the three points that we have this morning. Here we go. Are you ready? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, that was worth shouting. I better say that again. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zezrah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. I don't like that guy. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of of great jumping Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Boo, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah. I don't want people to ever say my name like that in history. And then Brian, boo. Anyway, God helped me to live different. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation or the exile to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel became the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to just lay each of those names out. I'm going to give you an annotated bibliography on each of them, their life story, and how they contribute to Christmas. Thanks for playing along, babe. No. How do these names affirm that Jesus fulfills God's promise and proves his providence? And ultimately, how how does this list of names give you and I confidence today that God will keep his word? How's that? Let's take a look. First of all, we know that God keeps his word because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Because God promised the Messiah. Jesus is the expected one. Now, Matthew's audience, their, Matthew's original audience, were primarily Jewish believers. 
And these names are important because they are important to that original audience. That original audience needed the encouragement. They needed to know. See, to them, lineage, history meant something. It it, it connected them. They needed the evidence that this person, Jesus, was connected to the people that were connected to the promise. And so Matthew lays out the evidence. He lets them know everything they need to see. He, he lets them see that Jesus is the hope of Israel and of the whole world. And here's how he does it. It's so cool. A lot of, now, this is going to happen again and again in Matthew. Matthew was going to use words, use phrases that, that either are a direct quote of the Old Testament. Sometimes he alludes to the Old Testament. And sometimes the Greek document is actually quoting or alluding to the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament. Matthew's brilliant in that way. There's some Hebrew references and then some Septuagint references. His first words are a reference to the Septuagint, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. If you and I are reading that as Matthew's audience, familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, boom, that's the, the first thing we are is hit with this massive whoa. Because the first time we read In fact, the only times we read the phrase, the genealogy of, those words in the Septuagint are in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 says, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. So they read genealogy of, but it says Jesus Christ. So what the first thing that Matthew's readers know is this, this is a new creation. It's not a new idea, but this is a new thing that God is doing. Then the next time they read this is in in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, when it says this is the genealogy of of Adam. The first man, the the progenitor, the the originator of the human race, Adam. And, 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 And Genesis starts with his name. But now Matthew says this is the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is about something brand new. This is about a new heaven and a new earth and a brand new humanity. Listen, you got to, whoa, just reading that in English, you might not know that, but whoa, Matthew's audience is in shock. He is, he is throwing down the gauntlet boldly about what the birth of Jesus Christ means. Something brand new, not a new idea, but a new creation and a new life. Then, then note the first anchors that Matthew gives us. He says that Jesus is, first of all, the son of David. If he's son, if he is, if Jesus is the son of David, then Jesus is the heir to the throne. The first thing he says, Jesus the Christ, the son of David, he's the heir to the throne. What's the second name he gives right away? He is the son of Abraham, which means he's the son of the, he is the heir to the throne, and Jesus is the heir of the promise. Jesus is the promised one. Matthew tells us that God keeps his word by describing God at work, fulfilling his promises through the generations. As a matter of fact, the next bold thing that Matthew, that we see Matthew do, it's all happening at once. But Matthew says this is the, this is the, the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, And then he says, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham? So he starts with Jesus and then lists his forefathers that way. Every Hebrew 
genealogy starts with the patriarch and works down. And everybody in that line, their meaning or their value, they are valuable or notable because they're related to the guy on the uplink. So here's the story of, of Adam, and then Adam, and then bop, 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 bop. These people are significant or important because they're all related to Adam. They rely upon the person at the start of the list for their significance. And in, in the book of Genesis, you see that time and again. It starts with Adam. Then God does it again with the sons. With, he says, these are the sons of Noah and then Noah's descendants. And even in chapter 11, The writer of the Moses, with Moses, but the Moses writes off, he says, now here's, here's the descendants of Shem. Honestly, God bless him, but we don't really care about Shem, right? Shem, Shem, okay? But it's like, here's the descendants of Shem. And, and there's, there's apparently a point here, the descendants of Shem. And we get down, name, 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 Abraham. Abraham, you'd think he'd have been at the top. Nope, he's identified as a descendant of Shem. Shem's at the top, then Abraham. So even Abraham is at the bottom of the list of a genealogy, but not Jesus. Matthew starts off saying, this is a genealogy of Jesus, and then turns history upside down. Matthew takes us, and and he shows us a lens of history through the person of Jesus Christ, that everything, everything, that has been happening, God has been working because Jesus is the significant one. And everybody is, all of these people in the, in the lineage, they are all included in God's promise, but God's promise isn't about them. God's promise is ultimately about Jesus. The Messiah. This reminds us, friends, that God's plan to save and to rule is not a plan that fits into your life. You you have the opportunity and the invitation to fit into God's plan. Therapeutic preaching always wants us to say, hey, tell people how this fits into their life. Shrink the Bible, recreate God in their own image so that they can take God as a cute little idol, as a little bobblehead, stick him on their dashboard and take him home. No, you get to fit into God's plan. All these people were part of a bigger picture. So are you. They were all links in a chain of a greater purpose. So are you. Christmas was not a coincidence. Christmas was not a random act of kindness. Christmas was not a sudden change in heaven's mood. Christmas is the fulfillment of a promise. Christmas happened because God keeps his word. Matthew shows us through all of these names, generation after generation, epoch after epoch, Abraham to David, David to the exile, and then from the exile to Messiah. In the, in the generations and in the major swaths where we see divine intervention working and the whole world changing and geopolitical boundaries changing and all of these things, when there were times when few thought that God even noticed he was working, when hope may have seemed to be going backwards, 
God was working. When the season was unclear or uncertain or even confusing, God was faithful. You and I can see in hindsight with clarity this. God keeps his promise through the generations. And we see that generation after generation, they were stewards. They all became one, each of those names, each of those generations were stewards of the promise of God. And in the same way, you and I are stewards of God's promise. That's why one more reason why at Heritage we celebrate, we honor, we recognize, we integrate every generation because we have a, there's a promise that is bigger than any one of us. The church didn't begin with us. It's not going to end with us. We are stewards. Stewards of a promise. Jesus came. He fulfilled the promise of the advent, the promise that Messiah would come. But, also, but his coming, as we've already recognized this morning, that, that there is a promise yet to come. That you and I are stewards not only of a promise that we have received in the, in the coming of Christ, but we also possess a promise that is yet to come. Greater even than the promise that's already been fulfilled. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19-22, through 22, Paul writes, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. Listen to verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, Christ, they are yes. Jesus fulfills every promise of God. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus, he is the fulfillment of every promise. And Jesus is the guarantee of every promise to come. You feel that? Jesus means God keeps his promises. He will keep it. He has kept his promise. And because he has kept it, he will keep it. And you and I are stewards of the promise of Jesus. That he came, that he did it, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he's coming again. Merry Christmas. Secondly, this passage also affirms that Jesus is the evidence of God's providence. Now, divine providence is is known doctrinally this way. Divine providence is the activity of God as he is involved faithfully and redemptively and extraordinarily in the lives of people. If the first, if our first point that God's that, that Jesus is, is the is the is the proof, or He shows us the guarantee that, that God keeps His promises generationally, it, 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 you might look at it this way: Jesus is the proof that God is transcendent, and He is sovereign, that He is watching over time, that He keeps His promises. But further, Jesus is the evidence that that God is not only transcendent; He is imminent. He is involved in the right now of the human life and the human condition. And in each of those human conditions, he is working. He is redeeming. He is intervening. He is calling. He is protecting. 
He is challenging. He is teaching. He is rescuing. He is restoring. He is redeeming. And He is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is providence. And this list of names shows us that God is working in the details of human lives. Because in this list, if you look at it again, and you can just purview it, peruse it, in this list we see not just generations, we see people. That God's plan, God's promise, God's activity to bring about Messiah, He worked in the lives of people. And, in, and those people, there were heroes in that list. Or at least people that we esteem and, and Matthew's audience would have esteemed as heroic. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the mighty patriarchs. And when we read their story, we find out there's a little Swiss cheese in their life too. Oh. We see heroes and patriarchs and we see Failures. We see the unlikely. We see the outcast. They're all included. Providence invaded all of their lives. In all of these lives, we see that God was working. He was redeeming. He wasn't causing pain or approving of their failure, but he was redeeming it all and working through it. God keeps his word. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the patriarch's great promises. But also we read Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. All women. Think of this 21st century room like, well, yeah. Durr. All boss babes. I have no idea. But understand that women were excluded from Hebrew genealogies. Women weren't part of their story, but they are part of God's story. And these women were either all Gentile or were married to Gentiles. Strike two. Tamar, what? Tamar was the widow who was the Canaanite woman, widow, rejected by her husband's family, who became pregnant by, let's say, nefarious means, but whose life was used by God. That's providence. God keeps his word. See, God's the hero. He's the hero of the story. Rahab, no, there isn't any way to change that situation. Rahab is the prostitute turned patriot. Rahab became the great, 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 something or another, great, great of Jesus. That's providence. He can't lose. He will not lose. Uriah, the Hittite's wife. That's Bathsheba, 
We all know about Bathsheba. It'd be easy for us in history to just dismiss her, but look what God did. Listen, the scandal that shamed her, God redeemed to fame her. God's promise included and even recruited the most outcast and unnoticed. Also in this list, against my better judgment, Lord, no, just kidding. In this list is the fool Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, whose arrogance divided the kingdom until both kingdoms collapsed. Think of it. Do you ever think that maybe someone else's actions are just too extraordinary, too extreme, and that somehow their foolishness might derail God's promise to your life? It's easy to think that. The Bible says otherwise. Then you have the revivalist Hezekiah who restored worship in the nation of Judah after generations of idol worship. And then his son, the rebel Manasseh, whose sinful leadership sealed Judah's fate and sent them into captivity. And were it not for the book of Chronicles, we would, we would just totally shake our heads at Manasseh, but the book of Chronicles tells us that at the end of his days, Manasseh found repentance. He found repentance. And even, even this rascal of rascals, and I don't mean that he was just on the naughty list, friends. Manasseh was, a, was an evil man without hope, without any hope of human redemption, but God. Providence found its way into Manasseh's life and turned him around. And then even through the exile, when all hope was lost, when they literally lost Jerusalem, the temple, their territory, their homes, their titles, their lineage. They lost everything. Even when it seemed like everything was lost, God was working. People's failures did not derail the promise of God. The failure or sin of others could not stop His word from working. Circumstances could not could not prevent his promise. Jesus is the evidence of God's providence. God is faithful, and he will extraordinarily care for your life. The message of Christmas, friends, is that God is present. He is present. He is working, redeeming, restoring, intervening, protecting He is working. Merry Christmas. And then lastly, because of those things, Jesus, because of Jesus, you, you can trust God to keep his word. Just as the birth of Jesus proves that God has kept his word, it testifies to you and to me today that he will keep his word. 
When you are tempted to wonder or to worry or to question or to give in to too much resentment or regret or wonder if God is doing anything at all, you, if you ever need to anchor your hope, remember Jesus fulfilled God's promise. And Jesus is the guarantee of all of them. God's promise will prevail. Your failure is not final. Your tragedies are redeemable. Your whole life is usable. When it seems quiet, he's working. When everything seems the same, he's working. When someone else blows it, he's working. Because of Jesus, we know that God keeps his word. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writes, Be confident of this. You ready for it? Be confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise the evidence of his providence, and because of Jesus, you can trust God to keep his word. Merry Christmas. Let's stand. Let's stand and give God praise. Can we do that? Let's give him praise. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we give you praise. Come on, church, let's just give him thanks. Would you give him thanks? Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we thank you that you're faithful and you're good. It's the only response. To trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. Lord, You are the way maker. You are the promise keeper. Thank You, Lord, for all of that. Thank You, Lord. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray over Your house. I pray over Your church for heritage people. I pray, Lord, Lord that, that this season as we enter in, Lord, the Christmas season, that we will start the same way that Matthew has started for us, that we will be reminded that you, that you are a promise-keeping, providence-working, word-keeping God because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. If you have an amen, why don't you let it out? All right, friends, don't forget, we're going to gather to sing our hearts out on Wednesday night. We hope to see you there on your way home now. Say something kind to somebody. Make sure to say something kind. God bless you.